Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. July 17. On this date in history, in the year 1955, Disneyland opens. Disneyland, Walt Disney's metropolis of nostalgia, fantasy, and futurism, opens on July 17, 1955. The $17 million theme park was built on 160 acres of former orange groves in Anaheim, California, and soon brought in staggering profits. Today, Disneyland hosts more than 18 million visitors a year who spend close to $3 billion. Walt Disney, born in Chicago in 1901, worked as a commercial artist before setting up a small studio in Los Angeles to produce animated cartoons. In 1928, his short film, Steamboat Willie, starring the character Mickey Mouse, was a national sensation. It was the first animated film to use sound, and Disney provided the voice for Mickey. From there on, Disney cartoons were in heavy demand, but the company struggled financially because of Disney's insistence on ever-improving artistic and technical quality. His first feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, in 1938, took three years to complete and was a great commercial success. Snow White was followed by other feature-length classics for children, such as Pinocchio in 1940, Dumbo in 1941, and Bambi in 1942. Fantasia in 1940, which coordinated animated segments with famous classical music pieces, was an artistic and technical achievement. In The Sound of the South in 1946, Disney combined live actors with animated figures, and beginning with Treasure Island in 1950, the company added live-action movies to its repertoire. Disney was also one of the first movie studios to produce film directly for television, and its Zorro and Davy Crockett series were very popular with children. In the early 1950s, Walt Disney began designing a huge amusement park to be built near Los Angeles. He intended Disneyland to have educational as well as amusement value and to entertain adults and their children. Land was bought in the farming community of Anaheim, about 25 miles southeast of Los Angeles, and construction began in 1954. In the summer of 1955, special invitations were sent out for the opening of Disneyland on July 17. Unfortunately, the pass was counterfeited, and thousands of uninvited people were admitted to Disneyland on opening day. The park was not ready for the public. Food and drink ran out. A woman's high heel shoe got stuck in the wet asphalt of Main Street, USA, and the Mark Twain steamboat nearly capsized from too many passengers. Disneyland soon recovered, however, 
and attractions such as the castle, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Snow White's Adventures, Space Station X-1, Jungle Cruise, and Stagecoach drew countless children and their parents. Special events and the continual building of the new state-of-the-art attractions encouraged them to visit again. In 1965, work began on an even bigger Disney theme park and resort near Orlando, Florida. Walt Disney died in 1966, and Walt Disney World was opened in his honor on October 1, 1971. Epcot Center, Disney MGM Studios, and Animal Kingdom were later added to Walt Disney World, and it remains Florida's premier tourist attraction. In 1983, Disneyland Tokyo opened in Japan, and in 1992, Disneyland Paris, or Euro Disney, opened in Marne la Vallee. Disneyland in Hong Kong opened its doors in September 2005. July 18. On this date in history, in the year 1986, video of Titanic wreckage is released. On July 18, 1986, New close-up videotapes of the sunken ocean liner Titanic are released to the public. Taken on the first manned expedition to the wreck, the videotapes are stunning in their clarity and detail, showing one of the ship's majestic grand staircases and a coral-covered chandelier swinging slowly in the ocean current. At the time of its launch, the RMS Titanic was the largest ocean liner ever built measuring nearly 900 feet long and 100 feet from its waterline to its highest beam. It was considered unsinkable, owing both to its vast size and its special construction. On its maiden voyage, the Titanic carried more than 2,200 people, including several of the world's most rich and famous. Its collision with an iceberg and subsequent sinking in the icy waters of the North Atlantic resulted in the death of some 1,500 people, many of whom could have been saved if the ship had carried a sufficient number of lifeboats. It was not until 73 years later, in 1985, that the Titanic wreck was discovered. Marine geologist Robert Ballard, in conjunction with John Lewis Michel of the Institute of Research for the Exploitation of the Sea, located the remains of the Titanic. 350 miles southeast of Newfoundland, 13,000 feet down on the ocean floor. Ballard, who was from Massachusetts Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, had the help of the U.S. Navy, which supplied him with Argo, a high-resolution sonar device and submersible photographic sled. Ballard's discovery caused a great stir among the public and touched off a new era in underwater exploration and scientific research, especially around the topic of the Titanic. The following year, Ballard returned to the wreck, this time to dive down to the bottom in a submersible craft called Alvin and acquire photo footage of the ghost ship. Ballard was accompanied by Ralph Hollis, the Alvin's pilot, and Mark Bowen, who piloted Jason Jr., a robotic submarine or swimming eyeball used to explore the interior of the liner. Two miles beneath the surface, 
the explorers found frozen in time trappings of life aboard the Titanic, including a wood-burning stove and unopened champagne bottles being readied for a toast. Jason Jr. also found the ship's safes, but left them as they lay. It was decided that the Titanic expedition would leave the ship's debris undisturbed on the ocean floor. Even after several years of visiting the wreckage, not a trace of human remains has been found. Like other soft, degradable materials, such as wood and carpet, human body parts were most likely scavenged by sea creatures not long after the ship's sinking. July 19. On this date in history in the year 1943, America bombs Rome. On July 19, 1943, the United States bombs railway yards in Rome in an attempt to break the will of the Italian people to resist, as Hitler lectures their leader, Benito Mussolini, on how to prosecute the war further. On July 16, President Franklin Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill appealed to the Italian civilian population to reject Mussolini and Hitler and live for Italy and civilization. As an incentive, American bombers raided the city, destroying its railways. Panic broke out among the Romans, convinced by Mussolini that the Allies would never bomb the holy city, civilians poured into the Italian capital for safety. The bombing did more than shake their security in the city, it shook their confidence in their leader. The denizens of Rome were not alone in such disillusion. In a meeting in northern Italy, Hitler attempted to revive the flagging spirits of Il Duce as well as point out its deficiencies as a leader. Afraid that Mussolini, having suffered successive military setbacks, would sue for a separate peace, leaving the Germans alone to battle it out with Allied forces along the Italian peninsula, Hitler decided to meet with his own one-time role model to lecture him on a manly art of war. Mussolini remained uncharacteristically silent during the harangue, partly due to his own poor German, he would request a translator's synopsis of the meeting later, partly due to his fear of Hitler's response should he tell the truth that Italy was beaten and could not continue to fight. Mussolini kept up the charade for his German allies. Italy would press on, but no one believed the brave front anymore. Just a day later, Hitler secretly ordered Field Marshal Erwin Rommel to take command of the occupied Greek islands, better to pounce on Italy if and when Mussolini capitulated to the United States. But within weeks, events would take a stunning turn. July 20. On this date in history, in the year 1969, Neil Armstrong walks the moon. At 10.56 p.m. Eastern Time, American astronaut Neil Armstrong, 240,000 miles from Earth, speaks these words to more than a billion people listening at home. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Stepping off the lunar module, Eagle, Armstrong became the first human to walk on the surface of the moon. The American effort to send astronauts to the moon has its origins in a famous appeal President John F. Kennedy made to a special joint session of Congress on May 25, 1961. 
I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. At the time, the United States was still trailing the Soviet Union in space developments, and Cold War-era America welcomed Kennedy's bold proposal. In 1966, after five years of work by an international team of scientists and engineers, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, conducted the first unmanned Apollo mission, testing the structural integrity of the proposed launch vehicle and spacecraft combination. Then, on January 27, 1967, tragedy struck at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Cape Canaveral, Florida, when a fire broke out during a manned launch pad test of the Apollo spacecraft and Saturn rocket. Three astronauts were killed in the fire. Despite the setback, NASA and its thousands of workers forged ahead, and in October 1968, Apollo 7 the first manned Apollo mission orbited Earth and successfully tested many of the sophisticated systems needed to conduct a moon journey and landing. In December of the same year, Apollo 8 took three astronauts around the far side of the moon and orbited it ten times before returning, and in March 1969, Apollo 9 tested the lunar module for the first time while in Earth orbit. Then, in May, the three astronauts of Apollo 10 took the first complete Apollo spacecraft in 31 orbits around the moon in a dry run for the scheduled July landing mission. At 9.32 a.m. on July 16, with the world watching, Apollo 11 took off from Kennedy Space Center with astronauts Neil Armstrong, Edwin Aldrin Jr., and Michael Collins aboard. Armstrong, a 38-year-old research pilot, was the commander of the mission. After traveling 240,000 miles in 76 hours, Apollo 11 entered a lunar orbit on July 19. The next day, at 1.46 p.m., the lunar module Eagle, manned by Armstrong and Aldrin, separated from the command module, where Collins remained. Two hours later, the Eagle began its descent to the lunar surface and... At 4.18 p.m., the craft touched down on the southwestern edge of the Sea of Tranquility. Armstrong immediately radioed to Mission Control in Houston, Texas, a famous message, the Eagle has landed. At 10.39 p.m., five hours ahead of the original schedule, Armstrong opened the hatch of the lunar module as he made his way down the lunar module's ladder a television camera attached to the craft recorded his progress and beamed the signal back to Earth, where hundreds of millions watched in great anticipation. At 10.56 p.m., Armstrong spoke his famous quote, which he later contended was slightly garbled by his microphone and meant it to be, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. He then planted his foot on the gray, powdery surface, took a cautious step forward, and humanity had walked on the moon. Buzz Aldrin joined him on the moon's surface at 11.11 p.m., and together they took photographs of the terrain, planted a U.S. flag, ran a few simple scientific tests, 
and spoke with President Richard M. Nixon via Houston. By 1.11 a.m. on July 21, both astronauts were back in the lunar module and the hatch was closed. The two men slept that night on the surface of the moon. And at 1.54 p.m., the Eagle began its ascent back to the command module. Among the items left on the surface of the moon was a plaque that read, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. July 1969 A.D., we came in peace for all mankind. 5.35 p.m., Armstrong and Aldrin successfully docked and rejoined Collins, and at 12.56 a.m. on July 22nd, Apollo 11 began its journey home, safely splashing down in the Pacific Ocean at 12.51 p.m. on July 24. There would be five more successful lunar landing missions and one unplanned lunar swing by Apollo 13. The last men to walk the moon Astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt of the Apollo 17 mission left the lunar surface on December 14, 1972. The Apollo program was a costly and labor-intensive endeavor involving an estimated 400,000 engineers, technicians, and scientists and costing $24 billion, close to $100 billion in today's dollars. The expense was justified by Kennedy's 1961 mandate to beat the Soviets to the moon, and after the feat was accomplished, ongoing missions lost their viability. July 21. On this date in history, in the year 1899, Ernest Hemingway is born. On July 21, 1899, Ernest Miller Hemingway, author of such novels as For Whom the Bell Tolls and The Old Man and the Sea, is born in Oak Park, Illinois. The influential American literary icon became known for his straightforward prose and use of understatement. Hemingway, who tackled topics such as bullfighting and war in his work, also became famous for his own macho, hard-drinking persona. As a boy, Hemingway, the second of six children of Clarence Hemingway, a doctor, and Grace Hall Hemingway, a musician, learned to fish and hunt, which would remain lifelong passions. After graduating from Oak Park and River Forest High School in 1917, he worked as a reporter for the Kansas City Star in Missouri. The following year, as a volunteer ambulance driver for the Red Cross in Italy during World War I, he was wounded by mortar fire and spent months recuperating. During the 1920s, Hemingway lived in Paris, France, and was part of a group of expatriate writers and artists that included F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, and Ezra Pound. In 1925, Hemingway published his first collection of short stories in the U.S., which was followed by his well-received 1926 debut novel, The Sun Also Rises, about a group of American and British expatriates in the 1920s, who journey from Paris to Pamplona, Spain, to watch bullfighting. In 1929, Hemingway, who by then had left Europe and moved to Key West, Florida, published A Farewell to Arms, about an American ambulance driver on the Italian front during World War I, and his love for a beautiful English nurse. In 1932, his non-fiction book, Death in the Afternoon, 
about bullfighting in Spain, was released. It was followed in 1935 by another non-fiction work, Green Hills of Africa, about a safari Hemingway made to East Africa in the early 1930s. During the late 1930s, Hemingway traveled to Spain to report on that country's civil war and also spent time living in Cuba. In 1937, he released To Have and Have Not, a novel about a fishing boat captain forced to run contraband between Key West and Cuba. In 1940, the acclaimed For Whom the Bell Tolls, about a young American fighting with a band of guerrillas in the Spanish Civil War, made its debut. Hemingway went on to work as a war correspondent in Europe during World War II and released the 1950 novel Across the River and Into the Trees. Hemingway's last significant work to be published during his lifetime was 1952's The Old Man and the Sea, a novella about an aging Cuban fisherman that was an allegory referring to the writer's own struggles to preserve his art in the face of fame and attention. Hemingway had become a cult figure whose four marriages and adventurous exploits in big game hunting and fishing were widely covered in the press. But despite his fame, he had not produced a major literary work in the decade before The Old Man and the Sea debuted. The book was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1953, and Hemingway won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. After surviving two plane crashes in Africa in 1953, Hemingway became increasingly anxious and depressed. On July 2, 1961, he killed himself with a shotgun at his home in Ketchum, Idaho. His father had also died by suicide in 1928. Three novels by Hemingway were released posthumously, Islands in the Stream in 1970, The Garden of Eden in 1986, and True at First Light in 1999, as was the memoir A Movable Feast in 1964, which he penned about his time in Paris in the 1920s. July 22. On this date in history, in the year 2005, The March of the Penguins debuts. On July 22, 2005, March of the Penguins, a French-made documentary about emperor penguins in Antarctica, opens in theaters across the U.S. March of the Penguins went on to win numerous awards, including an Oscar, and became one of the highest-grossing documentaries in movie history. March of the Penguins followed the year-long reproductive cycle of the emperor penguins and their arduous journey between the ocean and their inland breeding grounds. Two cinematographers spent a year in isolated terrain and challenging weather conditions in order to film the penguins in their natural habitat. The penguin parents were shown caring for their unhatched eggs and young chicks. Male-female penguin couples were presented as monogamous, leading some conservative commentators to declare that March of the Penguins promoted family values. The film's French director, Luc Jacquet, rejected this view. In a 2005 interview with the San Diego Union-Tribune, he stated, I condemn this position. I find it intellectually dishonest to impose this viewpoint on something that's part of nature. It's amusing, but if you take the monogamy argument from one season to the next, the divorce rate, if you will, is between 80 to 90 percent. 
the monogamy only lasts for the duration of one reproductive cycle. You have to let penguins be penguins and humans be humans. The American version of March of the Penguins featured straightforward narration by the Oscar-winning actor Morgan Freeman. However, the French version of the film, titled Le Marché de l'Empereur, used the voices of human actors to make it appear as if the penguins were speaking. At the 78th Academy Awards on March 5, 2006, March of the Penguins won an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. The success of March of the Penguins appeared to spark a mini-penguin craze. In November 2006, Happy Feet, an animated film about emperor penguins, opened in U.S. theaters. Happy Feet, which featured the voices of Elijah Wood, Robin Williams, and Nicole Kidman, won an Oscar for Best Animated Feature at the 79th Academy Awards on October 25, 2007. July 23, on this date in history in the year 1878, Black Bart strikes again. Black Bart robs a Wells Fargo stagecoach in California. Wearing a flour sack over his head, the armed robber stole the small safe box with less than $400 and a passenger's diamond ring and watch. When the empty box was recovered, a taunting poem signed, Black Bart, was found inside. Here I lay me down to sleep, to wait the coming morrow. Perhaps success, perhaps defeat and everlasting sorrow. Yet come what will, I'll try it once. My conditions can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. This wasn't the first time that Black Bart had robbed a stagecoach and left a poem for the police. However, it was the last time he got away with it. His next stagecoach robbery secured a lot more cash, $4,800. And yet another robbery on November 3, 1888, though he left behind a handkerchief at the scene. Through a laundry mark, Pinkerton detectives traced the handkerchief back to Charles Bolton, an elderly man in San Francisco. Bolton later confessed to being Black Bart, but bitterly disputed his reputation as an outlaw. I'm a gentleman, he told detectives with great dignity. How Bolton became Black Bart is unclear. What is known is that Bolton had tried to hit it big in the gold rush, but had ended up with a lifestyle beyond his means. Black Bart ended up serving only a short stretch in prison and spent the rest of his days in Nevada. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for July 17 through July 23rd. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then. Thanks for listening.